Hi, welcome to St Ninian's Sermons Podcast. I'm Stuart Cutler and I'm the Minister at St Ninian's Church in Stonehouse in Scotland. St Ninian's is a local ecumenical partnership between the United Reformed Church and the Church of Scotland and that means we reflect the traditions of both denominations in our work and worship. This week we focused on Ezra, chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. So let's hear this week's passage, read by Jim, and then we'll hear the sermon. We listen for the word of God as it's written in Ezra, and Jim's going to read for us today. Reading is from Ezra 3, Rebuilding the Altar. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been built, so it had been laid, rebuilding the temple. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorised by Sirius, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from their captivity to Jerusalem, they began to work. They appointed Levites 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working in the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads, who had seen the former temple, wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple. Being last, being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise. 
and the sound was heard far away. Amen. So there are some days when I can stand up here and say my week's been better than your week, but I've spent the week at the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, so your week's definitely been better than my week. (laughs) That event has been, as it always is, contrary. There are times when I have been encouraged and inspired and delighted. And there were times where I was frustrated and annoyed and despairing, sometimes within minutes of each other. And there's going to be a lot of talk about this assembly. (coughs) Excuse me. At last year's General Assembly, the church had asked for a radical action plan to be presented. And it was roundly rejected because it wasn't nearly radical enough. So this year, the updated version of that plan was greeted with wide acclaim. The first thing that happened was a change in the charity and organisational structure of the church. Instead of a large, unwieldy committee being in charge, there will now be 12 trustees. Their job will be at the direction of the General Assembly to ensure the delivery of the policies and priorities of the church, to set the budget for two new councils, ministry and mission and discipleship are going to come together to be the council that looks at our inward kind of stuff and mission, world mission and church and society are going to come together and they're going to be the council that look at our outward kind of stuff. That's a big merger of four big pieces of work. And one of the things they hope we're going to do in that is save 20 to 30% of what we spend. And the reorganisation isn't just for national structures. At the moment, there are 46 presbyteries. In five years' time, there'll be 12. For us in Hamilton Presbytery, that probably means that we'll merge with Lanark Presbytery. And resources will be put at presbytery level instead of national level. So things like safeguarding and finance and property and mission will have resources at presbytery level. The second thing that happened is much more to do with how we do church. Permission was given for Kirk Sessions, if they want to, to appoint elders who will always be ordained for the whole of their lives, but to appoint them to a term of office to serve, for example, for three years on the Kirk Session. So not everybody serves all the time. And the idea behind that is to make Kirk Sessions smaller and more able to respond to things that happen. But also so that when you're ordained as an elder, you don't have a 40-year sentence of... So did I say sentence? Of Kirk Sessions. This is an encouragement to come to the meeting next week. But you don't have to be a serving elder all the time. Now, Kirk Sessions are open to anybody to come to, so nobody's saying that people can't come. What they're saying is that the committee that makes the the decisions and looks after what we do could be smaller if we wanted to. It gives people a break, but also enables everyone to take their turn, to do their fair share. There's also going to be a review of the responsibilities of Kirk Sessions, because the church recognises that there's a lot to do. There's a lot of things that the Kirk Session are responsible for, and that's changed over the years as the charity law has changed. So there are more and more things that we have to do every year. And so they're thinking about how we do that well and how we do it properly, but in a way that's not a burden to everybody. We're lucky. There's 100 odd people here every week. 
and we have a big Kirk session. So there's lots of people to do all the jobs. If you're in a wee, a wee church with 20 folk, then that's a very difficult thing to do. We were encouraged to work together, to work with other congregations round about us, and particularly with our partners in different churches, something I was pleased to be able to recommend to the assembly. Resources for discipleship and mission will be created, along with initiatives for people under 40. A growth fund will be set up with up to £25 million available for projects in local churches. And one that uh, Bill, I'm sure, will be delighted with, ministries and missions contributions from churches will be reconfigured to allow more money to stay in local churches. They also froze the amount that we're going to pay next year, so nobody will pay more. The third thing that happened was the General Trustees published a new strategy called Well-Equipped Spaces in the Right Places. Looking at, well, well-equipped places in the right yeah, spaces. It's about buildings. It's about making sure our buildings are fit for this century. And all of those changes are to support growth and development. It's the ambition of the Church of Scotland to create 100 new worshipping communities in the coming years. With every congregation challenged to create a fresh expression, a new way of being church alongside our existing forms of church in every parish. So the challenge has been set, resources have been made available, and the question for us is, well, what are we going to do about that? A reading today is from Ezra, which I'm sure is one of your favourite books. You'll all have read it a hundred times. <laughs> Aye. Okay. <coughs> Ezra and Nehemiah are next to each other, and they're actually one book. At some point, somebody split them, but in the Hebrew Scriptures, they're just one book. And they might be described as a theological history. A theological history. They tell us what happened, but they also try to make sense of what happened and help us to understand a bit more about God through that. So it's not just a history book. There's something deeply theological in it, something about who God is and, and, and why we worship God and how we worship God and all of that kind of stuff. And it's especially about the relationship between the people and God. Ezra comes after the book of Kings. That's a wee help when you're looking it up when you get home. Kings is a history book. It tells us about the early days of Israel when the kingdom was first of all one kingdom and then it was split into two with Israel and Judah, Judah in the north, and the wars with the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the eventual defeat and the destruction of the temple. And the people are carried off into exile in Babylon. And Ezra is at the end of that part of the story when the people come back. So King Cyrus that we heard about in the reading comes to power in uh, Babylon and releases the Hebrews, sends them home and gives them money and stuff to go and rebuild their cities. And so they go home. After all these years, they get to go home. And this is about 537 B.C., so they go home, and when they get home, everything's been destroyed. Jerusalem is broken. It's destroyed. It's been knocked down. The temple has been knocked down. 
And so we join the story when the building starts. They've been there for two years. So they go home and they settle. They build their houses first. And then they build the altar to God. And then they start to build the temple around about that. But they don't really restore the temple. The foundations for a new temple are laid. The people have just gone ahead and got on with the work. They've just built what they thought they should build. And the foundations are already in place when the others arrive. When I was in the company section of the Boys Brigade, we used to go to camp every year. And we went to camp when camping was camping and you were in one of the, the big Icelandic tents, the big canvas things, yeah, kind of five and a half feet tall with a big ridge pole and all of that. You could roll up the sides and all that. And then you could pull the front off, it turns out, if it was wet. And you pull hard enough, the whole front of the tent comes off. But that's a whole different story. And every year, there would be, I don't know, 12 or 14 tents. Six boys in each tent and two officers in the same size of tent because they get big fancy camp beds and we didn't. <laughs> and the tents were heavy and they were big and we had a marquee so that we could all sit together and eat and we had a smaller marquee for a cook tent and that had to have like a kitchen in it and all that kind of stuff and you had to dig holes for toilets and string up a standpipe for water and all the kinds of things that you have to do to make a camp work for a week. And the big boys got to do all of that. So they would send an advanced party, it was called. So rather than everybody turning up at the same time and all these wee guys running about mad like we guys do and trying to build a, a camp while all of this is going on, you would send people in advance. So by the time the wee guys arrived, everything was there. So they were just going on holiday. But the bigger boys had been there for, for a day, sometimes two beforehand. And they would stay behind afterwards to strike the, the camp at the end. And when you're 12, it's dead exciting. You get off a bus or you get, you know, at somebody's car and there's this camp. It's just there, in a field, somewhere. And you're like, oh, this is amazing. It's just, it's just there. And it's brilliant because when you're 16, You've been there for two days unloading stuff and building stuff and digging things and doing all that kind of stuff. And by the time the wee guys arrive, you're absolutely shattered. But the sense of anticipation as you approach the camp was amazing. Especially because we never ever went to the same place twice. It was always somewhere new every year. The tents were the same, but the place was always different. And some of that was to avoid the, oh, that wasn't as good as last year. Because if you go to the same place all the time, it can, never, can it ever be as good as last year? You get to know a place and then it changes. And that's pretty much what happened with the temple. Many people, especially those who had never seen the old temple, thought it was wonderful. They thought it was amazing. The foundations of this new temple that's going to be absolutely brilliant. But not everyone. Ezra tells us that many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the family, the older people who had seen the first house of the Lord, wept in a loud voice when they saw it. And it's not difficult to imagine how they felt, is it? 
We've all been there at some point. Those times when you revisit somewhere that's been hugely significant in your life and it's different. It's just not how we remember it. It's not the same. And there are lots of reasons for that, aren't there? Things have changed. But so have we. For 70 years, these people had hoped and dreamed of a return to the place of their birth and to see the house of God again. But the temple had been destroyed. All that remained was rubble. And the memory of a splendid, incredible temple that Solomon had built was all that they had left. And they got their wish, they got to return. But the land they left years before it just wasn't there anymore. And what's even worse was that some young people had come along and built something different. Instead of following the plan that had been laid down by Solomon in the books in the Bible, well, they just built what they fancied. What was appropriate for them. What they thought would be the right thing. And they did that having learned things while they'd been away. Because things had changed and things were different and they had learned new skills about building and making things. And as the people grieved for what they could never have again, some people responded with a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundations of the temple had been laid. And just as many wept loudly, others shouted for joy and the people couldn't distinguish which was which. And so it is with us. We've been given the foundation of a new way of being church. A vision of a future that's beyond us. And a challenge to build something new for the generations to come. As our forebears did for us. And many of us will be sad about that. Because some of the things that we love and cherish will be lost. And we'll weep for them as we should. Because we weep for our memories. The things that we have experienced here in this place. When the font used to be over there. And there was pews over there. And here. And that organ worked. But we didn't have these two. And we couldn't have prayers over there. And we couldn't have the choir sitting here. Things are different. There were no screens. Things have changed. Even within a building that we think hasn't changed very much, it has. The lights are different. There's a new window at the back. All this stained glass wasn't here at the beginning. We've built a church. And we continue to build a church just as the people who set the foundations for this church did for us. The foundations have been laid. Joys or tears, past or present, this will remain a place of worship. 
a memory for some who remember the good old days that can't be matched by the presence the absence of the glory and splendor of how it used to be I like new things we're going to sing a new blessing but do you know the best bit of worship an unaccompanied paraphrase 800 people singing unaccompanied the Lord's my shepherd there's nothing like it but we sang a new song the good old days have lots to teach us but so do the people around us there is beauty and richness in it all and we stand at a tipping point between the new and the old for many of us the past will always be better and that's because it's already happened we can look back on it and know what it is and understand it and give it meaning and we attach our memories to it the past has made us who we are our very selves have been created by it but as we step out on this adventure of faith we know that again and again we discover every day something new we discover that the love of God is here in the present that our lives are full of joy and sadness and wonder and amazement and disappointment and all that stuff and that happens now we see the miracle of new life and that mingles and dries the tears of our past God is good God is good and his love endures forever that was the hymn of the people as they gathered around the new foundations of the new temple God is good God is good and his love endures forever each step that we take each new moment each thing that changes and develops and evolves because we change and develop and evolve God is there with us leading us forward prodding us with a stick follow me follow me follow me wherever that might lead Amen Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find us on Facebook at St. Ninian's Church Stonehouse and on Twitter at St. Ninian's Stonehouse. You can find out all the other great stuff we're up to. If you're passing and want to join us in person, we meet for worship every Sunday at 11am. We'd love to see you.